Good afternoon. The trial of Kyle Rittenhouse is in its final stages, and we are here to discuss it. Not only the trial, but perhaps most interestingly, the, the atmosphere around the trial and some early assumptions that people made about the case and what this case tells us about the times that we are living in. And we have with us uh, Mark Pellegrino, hi Mark, and James Valiant. James is also not only someone who uh, we use his uh, philosophical expertise and his historical expertise, but he has worked for a long time as a prosecutor. So since we have him on, we might enter also in some uh, details in terms of how this case is proceeding. First of all, let us give the historical context. So the background is the Kenosa riots of last year. So Jacob Blake, if you remember that video where Jacob Blake is shot in the back, uh, a black man is shot on the back by two police officers. And the initial reaction is that this was another case of police brutality. So this happened within two months of the Black Lives Matter protests. And initially, again, those who are very, very eager to throw uh, to throw gasoline to the fire said, you see, this is another case of police misconduct. So we had uh, protests that turned into riots also in Kenosa. For the record, the police officers were acquitted. Actually, they would, the case didn't even proceed because the idea was that uh, the guy who was shot actually held a knife. So Jacob Blake held a knife. Thankfully, he didn't die. Uh, it was thought that he has sustained life-threatening uh, injuries, that he wouldn't be able to walk. His health is going apparently better, which is good. So that's the background of what happened and why there were riots in Kenosa. So it was something like a follow-up from the protests and the riots of Black Lives Matter. So in day three of the riots, and it's important that it's day three because there have been days of protest and rioting and vandalism and looting, a 17-year-old then, Kyle Rittenhouse, drives with his car from his community to Kenosa. It was actually something like a 20-30 minutes drive. Again, important because the narrative is that he crossed state borders and he went somewhere where he shouldn't be. And he goes there to, according to his words, to protect the community. He had some links there, some family links. He goes with his mother. So he goes there as a paramedic and as someone who wants to defend the property that was under attack. The th things go actually quite bad that night. There are again riots. There are altercations among people who are protecting uh, or as they call them vigilantes and protesters. Things get bad and Kyle Rittenhouse shoots and kills three, sorry, shoots and kills two people and injures one more person. Now, this is the background mm. as it happened. And there were also videos. So from quite early, you kind of get the idea that there was something there where he was, people were after him and he looked like he was in self-defense. So very quickly, the narrative was, what is this boy doing there? So in the very, very moments, the idea was that a white nationalist is on the loose with a rifle. This narrative doesn't really fly because... So there were videos that he was there earlier. He, he said, I'm here because I want to protect the community. 
Then the idea is that, uh, so the idea that there's a domestic terrorist who sees there's a protest and he starts shooting doesn't fly. Then the narrative becomes that uh, he's out for, that uh, he was actually looking for trouble. And the idea was again, that this is Trump's America. Young people getting radicalized against Black Lives Matters and taking their guns and taking their law in their own hands. So very soon, very quickly, a big part of society had already made up their mind that Kyle Rittenhouse was guilty. So for example, we saw Facebook taking out appeals for uh, funding to support his legal case and GoFundMe also took down the, a campaign to collect legal funds for Kyle Rittenhouse. So everything, all these things is before the trial and this atmosphere of a white nationalist who is at least looking for trouble if he's not like a domestic terrorist on the loose is how we slowly go towards the trial. So let's stop here. So first comments on, let's say, the buildup of the trial and how, what is your take, first of all, on the case itself? And why did we find ourselves in a situation where you'd have protesters versus so-called vigilantes or whatever? And how did what do you make of the case? And then we're gonna get to the trial. Mark and let's and then James. Me first. <laughs> okay. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I definitely think this case came about in, in in a very strange time socially and politically, where uh, everything social seems to be politicized. Every every element of human life is now politicized and seen through the prism of this. Um, um, I don't know, uh, uh, intersectional oppression kind of uh, structure. And so now uh, it, it doesn't seem like there's an attempt at objective news. Everything, everything is cast in, in, this, in this light. And, uh, and we've also seemed to allow this, this idea or, or, or we've seemed to grow accustomed to the notion of, of protests and even violent protests as a legitimate means of advancing some political agenda um, so that even roaming through the streets and even being savages against uh, a people and property is somehow a legitimate means of protest. And also uh, we've popularized this notion that property is, is, uh, and life um, is, is less important than life. It's, it's perfectly moral to destroy property uh, and to not uh, take anybody's life who happens to be destroying property, irrespective of what that property means to the defender. So um, we have a very twisted social, political, moral system going on here that is excusing a type of anarchy and, and, and giving it uh, a moral pass while, um, while at the same time highly scrutinizing anybody who's attempting to uh, stand for law and order. James, are you at all sympathetic to someone who sees all this on TV and says, okay, I'm going to go out with my gun and or go out and find a gun because it's questionable whether he traveled with the gun. So would we say this is an idealistic kid or is this a kid who's looking for trouble or who is doing things yeah. that he shouldn't be doing? Well, first thing I would say is that his motive is not relevant. It is relevant only if it gives us an indication as to his state of mind at the shooting 
and the circumstances at the shooting, which is really what the law focuses on. In other words, he may have used very poor judgment. And frankly, I think when you consider last year, as Mark was just indicating, after the George Floyd shooting, uh, Minneapolis went nuts. Uh, Seattle went nuts. P Portland went nuts. We're talking about police stations that were taken over by protesters. Uh, they were sorry, George Floyd death, not shooting. I'm sorry. You said the George Floyd shooting. Do you well, mean the shooting, shooting of George Floyd is what I meant? Yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> that's all I meant. When George Floyd was shot, after that, uh, America, several cities in America went crazy. Um, and uh, police stations were literally taken over. Protesters attempted to close in the Portland police station and set it on fire with people inside. Police officers had been killed. Uh, 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 people, uh, just innocent bystanders had been killed. Uh, Seattle was having a no-go zone for the cops. So a kind of uh, anarchy was breaking out in various cities. So the police had completely failed in their job, in my view. Uh, they were not protecting rights as they should have been, and that sets the context. Now, does that make it reasonable for uh, private groups to go out as armed vigilantes? At some point, of course, it does. Of course, if we reach a point of anarchy, at some point it does. Now, it, was this context such that it justified this kid going out alone at night, a 17-year-old? I think it showed into a context like that, as you just pointed out, that it had days of rioting and Lord knows what all could have happened given the wider context of last year's violence in various American cities uh, because of this. Uh, did it show poor individual judgment on his part? In my view, that's irrelevant to the criminal charges here, poor judgment. But uh, even assuming he used poor judgment, even assuming he used poor judgment, it, it's no accusation against him. He had. You know, even if he had no contact with Kenosha, Wisconsin, he knew there was trouble there. He said, I'm just going to go try and protect people in Kenosha, Wisconsin, or see what I can do out there in response. Uh, it cuts both ways. It's not illegal is the point. The point is it, he didn't do anything by going there as such that was threatening. The defense makes a huge point that he was out after a declared curfew. Well, that's true, but everyone else out there was out there after the declared curfew and posed the same exact threat if being out after curfew was a threat. So you can't just focus on him. Now, he did have contacts there. His father, father's business was there. He regularly visited there. He knew that there were fires going on there. He brought a fire extinguisher. He brought a first aid kit. So that goes to, he had had some EMT, medical, emergency medical training. He, he is currently a nursing student. He did misrepresent immediately at the fact, uh, in the situation, I'm an EMT, but he had received some training in that respect. And the fact that he got a fire extinguisher and a first aid kit as well as the gun indicates that he probably had mixed motives. But remember, all the defense has to show is that there was a reasonable doubt. The prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that his motive was malign, and I'm going to go out and shoot innocent people out there. There was no such evidence of that. None and whatever. This is, why, this, is why, this is why the focus, I mean, most people who understand say probably the only charge which will stand is going to be the, the illegal uh, carry of the gun. Which oh, that's gone. That's yeah, gone. That's we gone may not even the, consider that because the, the prosecution... Yeah. The only thing that made that gun unlawful under Wisconsin law was that it was a short uh, barrel shotgun, you know, easily concealed. The prosecution never proved how long the gun was. 
case over. It was the burden of the prosecution to show that it was a short, too short. So uh, there was no such evidence. The judge has to go out of his way now to measure the gun. That charge is gone because it was lawful to carry. Yeah, and it was. Uh, this is a development that happened literally a couple of hours ago. Yeah. Now, gentlemen, it's not only though that the one side jumped in the in the case. So the rights found someone who, okay, we could say obviously there looks like he has been unjustly judged before the trial, but there were some arguments also from people who supported Kyle Rittenhouse, which to me they don't make sense. And mostly it's the argument that the guy he shot was a convicted uh, child molester. Now, has this got any anything to do with the case? So at that moment, Kyle Rittenhouse doesn't know that the guy he's shooting is a child molester. So does the fact that, the, and that we're talking about the first victim, which is, the, the, which is also the most difficult case because we don't really see, we see that someone is after Kyle Rittenhouse and then he turns and shoots, but it's kind of blurry exactly what happened. So does it matter who that guy is and whether he's Mother Teresa or whether yeah. he's a child molester? Only in the reasonableness of his self-defense would only matter if it was known to Rittenhouse. In other words, if Rittenhouse knew this guy was had psychological and criminal issues, that might influence his, uh, the reasonableness of his action. He did not. And so insofar as that's not known, it's not directly relevant to his self-defense at all. On the other hand, it is relevant to something. Mr. Rittenhouse says he was being chased, bizarrely chased by this guy. And he was being threatened by this guy. And this guy kept coming after him knowing he had a gun. Well, that's bizarre behavior. Why would you chase down someone out there with a gun? Well, earlier that day, he'd attempted suicide. Or day before, he'd, this guy had attempted suicide. He was not mentally all there. That helps corroborate the bizarre behavior that Rittenhouse claims. So if Rittenhouse says, I don't know why this guy kept chasing me and coming after me. He knew I had a gun. That goes to the fact that this guy was not mentally all there and would be doing something stupid and suicidal with, against Kyle, chasing Kyle Rittenhouse with a gun. One so in one friends. sense, it, it confirms Kyle Rittenhouse's uh, testimony that this guy was acting dangerously and uh, bizarrely, which indicated danger to, to Kyle. The most important part, and you're right, this first shooting is all important because the defense, uh, uh, the prosecution claims that Rittenhouse provoked everything. If you provoke all the violence, you cannot thereafter claim self-defense. If I come start shooting or saying, I'm going to shoot you, and then other people react, and then later I say, well, that guy was reacting himself too, you can't claim it. You provoked the whole thing. So it's very important here that it not be simply a malicious shot for no reason on the part of Rittenhouse. Otherwise, the rest of it will look like it was all his fault and that the crowd chasing him down was reasonable. The claim, claim of provocation was that he pointed the gun at the other guy. Now, apparently, now, I, I don't know about anybody else, but if somebody points a gun at me, my instinct is not to rush the person with the firearm, but <laughs> to freeze, put my hands up, and let well, them know I'm not a threat. Now, apparently, this gun pointing happened after a shot had already taken place, where he turned and pointed the gun at this character, whose response was to raise his hands and start chasing uh, Rittenhouse. The precise thing the prosecution just glossed over in their first part of the, their argument today over the fact that, the, that Rittenhouse did not fire the first shot. Right. The first gunshot happened from behind 
Rittenhouse by the Sulikowski guy. So did he did Rittenhouse know that there was any connection? The prosecution makes a big point of saying, well, there's no known connection to Rittenhouse, but how does Rittenhouse know that? How does Rittenhouse, since he doesn't know either of these guys, he hears a gunshot, he sees a guy chasing him, even if the unarmed guy is chasing him, who else is there with guns? Who else is working with this guy who's chasing him? Why would this nut be chasing him with a gun anyway? So the point is, the fact that the first shot came from someone else, not Mr. Rittenhouse, he hears bang, and here's this guy still coming at him. Well, that is itself a reasonable self-defense uh, uh, in my view. Once you get shot at, start getting shot at, everyone chasing you is therefore, a reason in your mind, is a reasonable threat of violence to you, especially if they're chasing you and they know you've got a gun. You know, there's, so, a, there's a part of me that understands the defense stretching facts to make a rigorous defense of their clients, but uh, I, I understand it. I don't agree with it. And I don't think it's moral, but there, but I really find it morally reprehensible that the prosecution is doing that right now. That as a prosecutor of 18 years, who's done dozens and dozens and dozens of murder trials, I am frankly distressed at the prosecution's attempt here. We normally argue the other side of that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the, he compared, the prosecution compared this to a bar fight. That's insane. We know what was been going on in Kenosha for the last two nights. We know what was going on out there. Uh, you know, <laughs> the reason why he went out there is there were fires, there were riots, there were crowds already violating that curfew. When Mr. Rittenhouse violated a curfew, which might be unconstitutional, by the way, that's why the judge couldn't even tell them that it was a valid curfew that Rittenhouse had violated. But if he had violated the curfew, as the prosecution said, all the others out there were also violating the, the curfew and were equally a threat by, by that fact. Okay, so, gentlemen, let's... Let's let's see. There are a couple of comments, questions from the audience, and then we continue because I'm also very interested in the reaction to how the court is is going. So, Sami, thank you very much for your uh, contribution. Marilyn, thank you very much. He asks, is he being tried as an adult? Yes. Normally, yeah. multiple murders. This is an adult court and fully adult, and he's up okay. subject to adult punishment, not mere juvenile punishment, which is substantially different okay. uh, no normally when a 17 year old that one close to majority is charged with multiple murder the prosecution normally gets them charged as adults and there's a procedure for doing that hugh says kyle is no hero but i can see a crooked prosecution and i don't think rittenhouse is a homicidal maniac self-defense and looks again it looks this way that's what the prediction for the court is but here's something else which i found very very interesting so Last week, I think it was last Wednesday, Kyle Rittenhouse, when he was on stage, burst into tears. And to be honest, you know, I'm not psychologist. It looks like a panic attack or something like that. Now, usually there is this almost a, a, an agreement of honor that when you see someone in this condition, you understand, you are a bit sympathetic in terms of on a human level. And this is someone who has experienced things that's going to change his life no matter what. It was a traumatic event. I mean, you are in a fight. You get in a fight and you remember it. He was in a, this almost hellish situation with, uh, and, and he killed two people and severely injured a third person. Now, here is very interesting how two very progressive and very reputable 
institution, uh, media outlets, the Guardian and CNN, dealt with this. So I want to I want to read some lines because I found it very very interesting, and I want your comments on that. So an article by Myra Donegan in the Guardian says that he was not crying for the men he killed, Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Haber. He was crying for himself, describing what he said was his mortal fear that night in August 2020. I didn't do anything wrong, Rittenhouse gasped, describing how he had confronted and ultimately killed the two men while he was guarding the lot of a car dealership. Let me first pause here. Notice this narrative again and again. This guy was there to, to, guide, to guard a car dealership. So lives were lost for a car dealership. And lives are more important than a car dealership. Uh, what do you make of this? Well, the law is explicit about this. Well, James, let's go to Mark first. Okay. And then we, then well, there's an easy legal answer, though, here. <laughs> what I find particularly disturbing about it is the left's penchant to psychologize about people on the right to know what their motives are, to know what their thinking is, and to know what their feeling is, and to presume that their feelings only extend to material things and not to other human beings. When the fact of the matter was, he was actually there to protect human beings and property. Um, but anyway, I just, I hate the way the left psychologizes uh, the right. I mean, it goes both ways. Boy, that is, that's yeah. true. Because you see, the right, there is an assumption on the part of many in the media that the violence and the riots and even the 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 dangerous, deadly dangerous situation that the rioters were putting in was somehow justified in these, what did they call them? Mostly peaceful protests. As you know, you've got the blaze going on behind the CNN reporter. <laughs> these mostly pe peaceful protests which are killing people, injuring people, burning property to the ground. They are, it, pro if I, it's mere property, the law says you cannot use self-defense or you can't use deadly force to get the property back or in self-defense. For example, a shoplifter steals a pencil at a, a five and dime store and starts running away. The guard can't just shoot him in the back because he's trying to steal a pencil. That's objectively unreasonable. However, there are situations of violence or theft or property damage, which are inherently dangerous to life, such as arson, mobs going around bashing things, jumping on cars. That is more than merely protecting property. That's saying anyone approaching me, we're going to fight back and we're going to use violence back. That's a reasonable assumption from rioting a mob riot, which is not merely defending property. But even were he out there simply defending the physical property, he has a right to do so, so long as he doesn't use unreasonable deadly force to do so. He didn't go out there, if he was if he was defending just property, he was out there to use reasonable force to defend property. When confronted with deadly force, he then has a right, a reasonable right to use uh, deadly force in self-defense. He'd well, already gunshot. Words, with simple words for the audience, it's not, if you're a sniper, Let's say, and you see someone is going to steal a car and you shoot, where you could say, okay, you were not in danger. But if you stand in front of a shop, let's say, and people attack you to attack the shop, then by defending yourself, you first of all defend yourself. You don't defend only the shop. Precisely. But you yeah, mentioned but psychologizing. But what, about, but what about the person whose boutique is getting ravaged and, and destroyed? And it's not, even, it's not even clear that anybody's life is threatened but in the, in the immediate moment. But that person has invested their entire life savings in this business, and they're going to lose everything. They have a right to go there and protect it with a gun. 
You come right. close to my property, I'm going to shoot you. You right? So, so the they are threat too. So even though the consequence is further down the line, it's not an immediate threat to life, but the threat to life is happening because they're losing their life's work and savings. Well, well, no matter how big the property th loss, even if it is pure property loss, it does not justify the intentional taking of another life. However, it is the attacker who needs to know this. In other words, if I set fire to a building, the assumption is there's someone in there, not the assumption that no one is in there. In other words, I'm setting fire to a building. I'm causing a deadly threat. I'm not just destroying property. If I'm in there just to sneak in through a window at night and I'm going to steal some stuff, then it looks like I'm not trying to threaten anybody's life. If I break into a home at night, that is inherently, now get this, just breaking into a private residence at night is a reasonable deadly threat, right? Not because why are they in your home? So right. some so there's borderlines. So what I'd say, Mark, is that there's a borderline. Some threats to property, such as an, a residential burglary or an arson or smashing windows, they're more than just an attack on property. They imply a violent threat to anyone who might be there. Whereas a shoplifter, right, is clearly not wanting to hurt anyone and just wanting to sneak off with it. You just can't shoot him. Hmm. Does that make Let's sense? Let's continue with the article because, again, it's very, very telling. So the, the, the author continues. It was about Kyle Rittenhouse crying. It was a performance meant to make him seem helpless and childlike and to convince the jury in his homicide trial that there was a reasonable possibility that he was in fear for his life when he shot the three men. But to many, the emotion of Rittenhouse testimony seemed to stem not from his memories of the incident, but from the indignant entitlement of a white man thwarted in the enforcement so of bad. his own privilege. So and it goes on to link it with the Kavanaugh case, because apparently if you're a white man, your case and your character and your psychology is exactly the same with any other white man, which is like textbook racism that even... Uh, but anyway, he says that to those of Brett Kavanaugh who shouted red-faced and spitting, during his confirmation hearings when he was asked questions about his alleged assault of Christine Blasey Ford. By the way, could you ever imagine someone in a progressive newspaper describing a woman crying and saying red-faced and spitting and having stuff running out of your nose? It would be considered completely, completely tasteless. Continue. They express their feelings when they fly Confederate and Blue Lives Matter flags. So she talks about how conservatives are actually super emotionalist. And notice again here, waving a Confederate flag and waving a Blue Lives Matter flag is put considered the same category. They express their feelings when they vote and when they pick petulant fights with the service workers who ask them to wear their mask inside stores and restaurants. So anything goes, like maybe he's also an anti-vaxxer. Who knows? The common the common thread in these right-wing expressions of masculine emotion is that when conservative men express their feelings, they don't do so as a gesture of humility or need. And I comment here, so if you cry out of humility or need, need, then it is good. Continue. Oh, yeah. Indeed, they, they wield their feelings as a threat. To whom? But anyway, finishing. <laughs> Kavanaugh was a boy like Rittenhouse with an in inflated sense of his own importance. So don't think you're too important, people. It's bad. <laughs> the emotion he seemed to have expressed most clearly in those years was a consuming and profoundly unearned sense 
of his own superiority. Maybe the problem is not that these white men don't express their feelings enough. Maybe the problem is that their feelings have too much power. So this is how the average opinion maker, progressive opinion maker, views this thing. They say, here's a white man. I have no idea what happened. I don't care what happened, but I see a white man there. And this tells me all I need to know because, again, every white man has a position, is in a position of power. So, yeah, I mean, we can sympathetically claim that AOC is undergoing therapy because of the January 6th incident, and we should suppose to empathize with that. But the white man crying because he's on a stand and his life is on the line, this is a, this is a quote, performance. And I have, I find this- please let me go first. I have seen guilty men cry because they shot. The fact is that when you have to take a human life, or you don't, you just take a human life, most human beings are going to be traumatized for, for because of it. If you've ever spoken to anyone who's had to act in self-defense that way and use deadly force, and I have spoken to hundreds, and if you've ever spoken to a veteran of war or a cop who's had to do this, I've spoken to cops who've had to do this more than once, uh, you know that it, it does, tra- it's traumatizing to any healthy human being with a normal you know, psychology, and it will affect them. To think that he's not affected by it is what's utterly bizarre. Of course he's going to be affected by it, whether it was reasonable or not that he did this. Doesn't the fact matter. that he was he, affected by it only shows that he's a human being. Yeah, but it does. he's not a human being. He's on the right. Yeah, see, that's the thing. They, they impose these psychological narratives on, well, Kavanaugh, the, the person who wrote that is obviously the one epistemologically disturbed. Kavanaugh was objectively innocent. The, his accusers are provably false in this case. So the, the comparison to Kavanaugh is simply bizarre. Uh, there's no proof that Kavanaugh did anything he was accused of in that uh, hearing. Um, and it's mostly been withdrawn. And any sensible person. But the comparison is very interesting. It's as if every white boy in America has grown up with this emotional privilege that his emotions should govern everything. And that's not, I mean, that's bizarre. If you think every Trump supporter is a racist and you're imposing that on every narrative, then of course your view is distorted. The rioters you see were doing a noble thing in their committing crimes when they violate curfew, when they burn things, when they jump on police cars, when they just smash windows. They're not threatening violence, you see. They're not they're not doing anything wrong. They were they were acting reasonably. If Kyle Rittenhouse sees that the cops aren't doing anything to protect Kenosha and he goes to his father's town in Kenosha to go put out fires with a fire extinguisher because, you know, he was carrying the fire extinguisher right as he's being chased by by the first so-called victim. He puts down the fire extinguisher to pick up the gun, which was visible to everybody and the guy still chasing him. And then he hears someone else who he doesn't know shoot a gun behind him. Uh, Mr. Rittenhouse was in an object. No reasonable person would not think they were in a deadly, dangerous situation. Who knows who else is out there with a gun other than the first guy who shot, which wasn't Rittenhouse? Who knows how they're connected to yeah. other people there at the scene? Time out. We're gonna get back to the to the to the legal part of the case at the end because okay. I have one more sure. question for you. But let me also go to a CNN article. So again, this is Guardian and the CNN. This is not like your average. Oh, no, these are the big news outlets in the West, yeah. So here's a CNN article. So it starts. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, the 18-year-old on trial in Kenosha, Wisconsin, for shooting three people and killing two of them, represents the epitome of white privilege in America run amok. 
continue. His quote, protracted sobs and people's telling reactions to them spoke volumes about the moment America now finds itself in. Listen to this. Whether or not Rittenhouse is convicted, the perspective he represents, galvanized by the anger, fear, and prejudice of white Americans, has already achieved its ends, normalizing a kind of racial privilege exposed. So what do they expect is that they would say, look, if he was black, he would be shot. But because he was white, he was not shot by the police. So what is the argument here that everyone, because some police officers do criminal wrong things, they should kill everyone inside so that there's racial balance. And the article continues and actually ends with this. I defended myself, Rittenhouse claimed during his testimony. If the, if the jury believes these words, Rittenhouse will likely go free. His defense team has also made the motion for a mistrial, blah, blah, blah. If any of that happened, it will be to America's enduring same. So here's what happens. CNN is actually telling, if Rittenhouse is free, walks out free, it will be a same. But notice that the person in the article, and then again, this is the CNN website, doesn't mention a single evidence on whether he's innocent or guilty. <laughs> but what he's saying is he shouldn't walk out free. This is, and I'm not saying this lightly, this is the Bolshevik idea of justice. It is. Where a very famous line by someone, a Bolshevik called Latsis, who, because life is funny, he died in the Moscow trials by, by his comrades. But after the revolution, his famous line was, you don't try to find if the innocent, if the, if the, if the victim, if the, if the person on court, on trial is innocent or guilty. You ask, what class is he coming from? Because remember, this is about the elimination of classes and this is not about whether X is, quote, objectively right or wrong. So this article, again, is, is expressing this view of justice, that this guy is the epitome of white privilege. Therefore, he should bury on his shoulders everything which is wrong with white privilege. So, James, let's start with Mark this time because he hasn't spoken too much. Then we go to James and then one more round of no, super just, chats and just, then we're done. It's just insidious. It's so sick psychologically. And it and I think it has the secondary effect of priming the they're priming the pump, right? They're they're preparing us for potential violence in the future if 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 the court decision doesn't go the way they want, which is to say people actually think the guy was defending himself legitimately and he gets let off, it'll just be another example of, uh, of, of white power structures in, in operation and will give some folks even more of an impulse to go out and do bad things to people. So it's just so sick. These, these people are provocateurs, these, these pundits. They're they're in they're 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 in the that that club whatever it is that Marxist club that wants to destroy America and is and is doing it by any means necessary and now it just so happens to be with this you know kind of postmodernist nonsense and uh, critical race theory uh, and and they're they're using uh, they're exploiting uh, you know moments places pieces uh, events in time as they have since the late sixties to push their agenda even further. I agree with that. Perhaps the most disturbing thing to me is that a prosecutor, an agent for the state in enforcing law has introduced politics as a relevant element here. It does not matter 
what the political motivations of the rioters in Wisconsin was to the commission of their crime. It does not matter if they committed an unjustifiable crime. It does not matter what the political motives of Mr. Rittenhouse were uh, if his crime was done in valid self-defense, which I think it clearly was. We have video to that effect. The prosecution has admitted, has admitted facts sufficient to show that he was acting in objective self-defense. His political motives don't matter. We have opened a ch dangerous chapter in America, starting with the federal government under the Obama administration, in my view, in using the, uh, uh, the entire apparatus of justice and law enforcement in a politically biased, motive, wet, motivated way. If, in fact, it matters that, geez, these poor people out there protesting that night were just protesting. And when they were setting fire and smashing windows, carrying guns, shooting guns like the first shooter before Rittenhouse, that's all okay, <laughs> you see. That can be politically excused. Whereas a white boy going there to defend against these rioters, setting fire to things and so forth, um, once we've added politics to the dimension, you can forget objectivity and law. There, it does it. There, the elements of the offense and the, the, the details of whether it was reasonable self-defense or not really don't matter, do they? What we've done is we've said politics trumps and the political motives matter. And if we like your political motives, like the rioters, then we in the media or in certain po prosecution offices will treat it one way. If we don't like your politics, we don't think your psychological motive is based on our politics, then you must be a criminal who was asking for it and uh, therefore you were the instigator and the provoker. You see, the whole idea that he provoked everything simply by going out there with a gun does not, it's not objective provocation. He was not the only one out there with a gun. He was not the first person to fire a gun. He was being chased down. He had to drop a fire extinguisher that he hoped to use in order to use that gun, and then was chased by people saying, get him, get him, get him, uh, beat him up, he shot the gun. And there it doesn't matter when, what the other people were doing. The question is whether Rittenhouse thereafter was facing an objective threat of uh, death or great bodily injury, which he clearly was. He had physical injuries confirming that he was hit by the skateboard. He had physical injuries confirming he had tripped over. We can see on the various videos that he's running. His first thought is to get to the police and say, I shot someone. You know, a vicious killer is going to go run to the police first and say, I shot someone. Now, there are, from every angle I can look at, if this were traditional law, he's not guilty by reason of self-defense of all of these charges. Okay, some comments from the audience, so uh, contribution by Sami, thank you. Question by Marilyn, if someone is, actually comment, not question, if someone is stealing or destroying your life's work, it should be legal to shoot them. Something is wrong with the law, which is, I think, relates to what Mark has been saying, that we've made this distinction between your life and your life, livelihood, which is, which is on very shaky, shaky grounds, morally. Enric says, thank you for clarifying the details of action and legality and media, political, ethical context. Okay, one last question, gentlemen. Many conservatives are saying that the silver lining here for Kyle Rittenhouse is that he's going to become a multimillionaire when he starts suing all these people that a year ago were framing him as a white nationalist or a domestic terrorist. And we have the precedence of the Covington boys and of Nick Sandman, who allegedly has made a lot of money from that. My question to you both is, does this go against, uh, does this go against uh, free speech, suing people when they go 
on public and make allegations against you that are not right. Mark, start with you and we end with James with his legal take, but like from a moral point of view, would you think that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse should go out and start suing? Um, sure. Yeah, they, they maligned him in the press. And I think that, that um, uh, I mean, if, uh, look, a, a journalist's responsibility is to, is to try to bring us the facts. Jur- journalists are, are sort of the brain of our culture. And when they're integrating facts in an inappropriate way, our culture can't respond to the in, uh, information properly. And we become, uh, you know, neurotic and, and psychotic to the degree that we're divorced from the facts of reality. And this degree of editorialization of the news um, has to stop. It has to stop. And the way to do that is to kick these people where it counts in their pocketbooks. And every time they produce a news story that is based purely on conjecture or psychologizing about uh, the opposing tribe, and through that psychologizing and conjecture, they malign somebody's character, they drag it through the mud, they destroy their reputation, they should be sued for everything they have. Amen. Morally speaking, amen. Now, most most lies should be legal. But if a lie is specific and factual and defamatory, and it causes provable economic or physical harm, it should be actionable in civil lawsuit. This will depend upon his being acquitted of these charges, of course. But once he's acquitted of these charges, yes, a reasonable uh, opportunity now opens because so many of these media outlets rush to call him every name in the book, a white supremacist, a murderer, a monster, uh, and every single one. Domestic terrorist. Domestic terrorist. And so just like with Sandman, yes. Look at those Rutgers uh, students who were accused of the rape. Time and after time after time, the media jumps on a bandwagon that is totally immoral. Until we get the facts, they should just shut up and, and just let the facts come out from the official channels. When a prosecutor, a detective, or a defense attorney comes out with evidence, we sure, report on the evidence, but don't come to opinions until, and that you're just prejudicing the jury in the meantime. So was this kid getting a, going to get a fair trial after all the potential jurors in Wisconsin are getting repeatedly bombarded by this? No. And there's, even if he's convicted, mind you, there's all kinds of appellate issues here. The prosecution referred to his post-arrest silence for the last 40 or 50 years. That's been clear constitutional law. Prosecution training 101. That could, well, even if he's convicted on appeal, this could get reversed, in my view, simply because that happened. But let's assume he's acquitted. He could sue. And could and I believe Sandman did get a hefty multi-million dollar uh, judgment from you know, each of these media outlets that accused him of being a racist and jumping on the bandwagon. So I agree with Mark. Uh, this is uh, they have opened themselves up to valid legally and morally valid legal suits. They've ruined it's like with Sandman. They've ruined this kid's life. Can you imagine him trying to get a job in some uh, publicly respectable way now? Employers aren't going to touch him. They've affected his life forever. If this is a lie, and I, I think it was an unjust lie. And okay, and thank you also, Regina, for your for your contribution. So now I wish we had also James to discuss the Derek Sovin case and uh, the police officer who, according to court, killed uh, George Floyd, according to his side or according to other evidence. George Floyd died from causes that didn't have to do with the knee. But 
the court decided this, but there was a lot of discussion that the case was so politicized that it was almost impossible for Derek Chauvin to get an acquittal. And I don't want to get into the essence of the case, but it's what you both said that we live in times where these cases are de facto politicized. And even Dr. Peikoff had talked about this in the O.J. Simpson case, that it was almost impossible, that there are cases where you know that the court is almost impossible to, to, to not be guided to a particular to a particular direction. I have a simple rule if I could have a last comment. The more the media is involved, the less likely a fair result is to occur. And in, as a prosecutor for 18 years, my, my strategy was to keep my case out of the press, even though it might do me political good to get the case done properly. I don't want the jury to have heard anything about it one way or another and hear everything in, just coming in from court from the prosecution and defense. So yeah, media is got a bad reputation here. <laughs> I, yeah, but I would say I would say it's less the the fact of say let's say the media of fifty years ago when you know following the Manson trials definitely um, didn't have this uh, they probably had less access but it didn't have the same scope of of engagement and 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 partly that's due uh, to the fact that media people back then didn't consider themselves activists at the same time that they were media folks. So you have people who are advocates for a cause and a point of view, promoting that cause and point of view in their journalism by way of journalism. And that's what's dangerous. It's not the information. It's the way that it's being presented because they consider themselves activists is dangerous. Yes, and sir. proudly, proudly they proudly. Consider yeah. Okay, gentlemen, thank you so much, both. Uh, J uh, those of you who like James, Imagine James in action when we're discussing the peak of courses every Sunday. So if you are not yet a member of the Annual Center UK, here's another reason to do so. Uh, the course we're doing these days is Understanding Objectivism. We're in Lecture 3. We're having a good time. We are linking peak-offs themes to people's everyday life and decisions. Yesterday, we had the long discussion, if it is okay to cheat, on a business trip, on an exotic island, if no one will ever know. And how does this lead to the virtue of honesty? So we're having a good time and uh, you, should, you should join us. But thank you very much, Mark. Thank you very much, James. Uh, no Clubhouse today because it's a bit late and uh, the episode went for too long, but hope you got value out of it. Thanks very much. See you soon. Thanks you again.